please stand as I read from Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she'd learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, from whom he canceled, canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven." For she loved much, but he who is given little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for Silas. We thank you that you have called him by name, that he is your son, and that he rests completely and securely in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given him these words to say to us, and we pray that they will bless our heart, that they will comfort us, and that they will challenge us. We pray that you will give him courage to speak what you have given to him. We pray that you will give him assurance that they are your words. We pray that you will give him rest in you and you alone and that you will give him peace of heart while he delivers these words to us. Father, we thank you for his life. We pray that you will continue to grow him in the knowledge of who you are and the depth of your love, and we pray that you'll continue to knit us together in the knowledge of your love. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Lee. Good morning, everyone. How are we going? Um, yeah, big thank you to Lee for inviting me to speak up here this morning and to be trusted in continuing this series of broken people searching for a whole God, a perfect, sufficient God. Now, whoever was here last week, does anyone remember what Lee spoke about? <laughs> jars of clay? <laughs> jars of clay, yeah, that's right. Lee spoke about um, these jars of clay, cracked, bre breakable, stainable jars of clay, and they are holding a treasure. The jar is not perfect, but what's in it is, just as we aren't perfect people, but we can rely on a God who is. 
I won't ask you if you remember what I spoke about last time I was here. That's, yep, we'll leave it at that. Um, but this week we're going to look at how our whole God works in two very different but still very broken lives. Uh, now, if you're a note taker, if you're a note taker, you can get your phone out to put some uh, notes in there or you can write on there. Uh, I'll, I'll talk what my points are going to be this morning. We're going to look at two different characters. We're going to look at how they approach Jesus. And we're going to look at the effect of forgiveness. Two characters, how the effect. Our reading is about a dinner where things went a little unexpectedly. One of those dinners that you'd be talking about for weeks, in this case, centuries. Have you been to a dinner where something went a little unexpected? Maybe a guest arrived that you just really, really didn't want to talk to. Or um, perhaps there was a little bit more consumption of alcohol than you were comfortable with and the party went a little differently than expected. Uh, For me, it's always about the food, right? I'm, I'm a notoriously fussy eater. So every time I go out to someone's house, I'm always a little bit nervous with uh, what they might be presenting me. Uh, I'll often eat before I go uh, to someone's house just so I'm a little bit full in case they pull out a beautiful vegetarian lasagna. Uh, One of my biggest nightmares actually came true when I was uh, at a work lunch and there was 90% salad, uh, but one meal that had some beef in it. So I went to eat the beef and it was uh, coated with some nice green herbs which I assumed was basil. And as I bit into it, a horrible sensation erupted in my mouth and deep into my brain. You know what I bit? Coriander. (laughs) Coriander, the most heinous herb on the planet. (laughs) I mean, I still fear coriander. I can generally sense when I'm in the same room as coriander. Um, You know, I'm always having to check what the garnish is on top of a meal. Is it basil or is it coriander? ruled me out of a few Thai restaurants. Um, This dinner uh, here that we're looking at does go a bit unexpectedly for a few other reasons. So let's just imagine for a moment where we're at this dinner. You're sitting in the presence of some pretty big names. You've got uh, this Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee. He's a pretty prestigious guy, a teacher of the law, and he's actually joined by an even bigger name, Jesus of Nazareth. And halfway through this dinner, about between the entrees and the mains, we have a gate crasher. The party is interrupted by a sinful woman. Now, judging by her long hair and the jar of alabaster she carries, we assume or are led to believe that she's a sinful woman because she is a prostitute. The atmosphere in here has changed pretty quickly. All right? The woman comes straight up to Jesus, bawling her eyes out enough tears to wet his feet, then dry them with her hair, kiss his feet, and pour this jar of perfume over his feet. Just imagine for a moment, the conversations at this party are high-top intellectual conversations on life, on the law, and here we're interrupted by this prostitute weeping. I'd almost, almost consider eating a bit of coriander rather than this happening at my next birthday party which you're all invited to. While the dinner is starting to go cold, Jesus takes this very awkward situation and he chooses now to make it into a life lesson, a masterclass, a masterclass even greater than Dustin Martin's masterclass we saw yesterday in the AFL Grand Final. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jesus is going to show us just how amazing this unexpected and un- uncomfortable moment is and how a woman in desperate need for forgiveness responds to him. So, these two characters, Simon the Pharisee. Now, just to clarify, this Simon, this isn't Simon, one of the disciples, this is Simon the Pharisee. It's a bit confusing because at the start, we're only introduced to the Pharisee, then later, the name Simon is added, but it's the same guy, Simon the Pharisee, not the disciple. Are you with me? Cool. All right. Another thing I think it's important to uh, remind ourselves of is at this point in the story, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' identity is under some scrutiny. So, we've got his disciples, you know, they love him, they believe him, they follow him, but even they are surprised at the idea that he would have to die on a cross. Then you've got people like the Pharisees, like Simon the Pharisee. They acknowledge Jesus has got some pretty serious knowledge of the Old Testament. They uh, acknowledge he knows his scriptures. Some responds to him in the passages, say it, teacher. He they, they even believe that this guy might be a prophet, but they're indignant of some of the things Jesus is saying to people and some of the things he's saying about himself. So, Simon hosts this dinner, invites Jesus with a bit of an agenda. He's looking for an intellectual discussion, you know? He's looking for conversations on the law, maybe impart some of his knowledge, maybe get a little bit of knowledge. His concerns are with his position as a leader of the law, as a Pharisee. And we kind of get this feeling when you read how he responds to the actions of this woman. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. How does, uh, he, he, he doesn't have a heart for this woman, he doesn't have a heart for the lost, he has his rules and someone so deep in their sin, they shouldn't be coming anywhere near this place. Now, it's always nice when your first impression of a parable uh, is actually the correct one. Uh, So, this is a nice, simple parable, lucky for us this morning, lucky for Simon. Uh, All right, we've got a moneylender and we've got two debtors, one with a small debt, one with a big debt, both unable to pay. Guess what? Both debts cancelled. Who's going to be more grateful? Who's going to love that moneylender more? Imagine tomorrow, Commonwealth Bank puts out a statement Come to your local branch between 12 and 1 o'clock, we're cancelling all your mortgages. Great news, scrapping them, debt-free. Who is going to be first in line there? You you can put your hand down, it's just a rhetorical question. (laughs) Is it the guy with the small mortgage that's, you know, nearly got it all paid off? Or is it the guy that borrowed that bit extra to fund that jet ski, the boat, the Toyota Prado, the beautiful big house around the corner on High Street, still got a few million dollars in the debt. The parable is very clear and Simon hits the nail on the head with his answer. It's the one with the bigger debt. He understands this concept, he gets the parable, but can you see the struggle in his mind as he processes this idea, you know, in front of people looking at him? The idea of this simple parable, yet in front of him, he's wrestling how that relates to the sinful woman at the feet of Jesus. Sure, this makes sense in the context of money, but sin, we're talking about sin here. Shouldn't she, with the biggest sin, the biggest list in the room, shouldn't she be the furthest one away from Jesus? How can someone with such a life of hers come crying, pouring out perfume, and not be kicked out of this prestigious dinner that's being held? 
If Simon and the sinful woman are the debtors, God is the moneylender. So the claim that Jesus could forgive this woman is suggesting that he too is God. Whoa. And you can see why they were shocked. Jesus is acting as if he himself is God. This is the start of Jesus revealing who he is to the people, to the community, that he's more than just a teacher, that he's more than just a prophet. Okay, let's talk about the other character now, the sinful woman. Now, just to clarify things, uh, you might feel like you've heard this story before, um, but there's a chance you're thinking of another story with alabaster perfume. So, later in the Gospels and in a few of the Gospels, we have Mary from Mary and Martha pouring some perfume from an alabaster jar on Jesus' head, all right? That's a different story. She's the one that uh, they, they accuse her or criticize her of wasting an expensive perfume, but Jesus praises her for this action. So that's, that's Mary. This is an unnamed sinful woman we're led to believe as a prostitute, perfume on the feet. Let's look at how she's approaching Jesus differently. Um, first, I'll just share a bit of a story. I was driving to work the other day and I had a late start, a later shift. So when that happens, you know the car park is going to be full. So I went into the, the multi-story car park where there's lots and lots of levels and lots of bays. And you know when you're in a multi-story car park and you know there's going to be no parks right up until the top, you start going around pretty quick, doing your laps, up the ramp, next level, up the ramp, next level. I'm on autopilot at this point and uh, probably doing about 40 in a hospital car park. And as I approach the ramp on level two, uh, there's a bit of a puddle and I turn, hit the ramp, slide across the puddle and end up hitting the wall and hitting the front corner of my car. So I managed to be able to still drive it, but the steering wheel is doing this the whole time and I eventually get it home after work to my folks' place. We pull it up, I bent the lower swing arm, essentially my front wheels, one of them's like this now. Uh, took about 30 seconds for the mechanic to tell me that my $1,000.99 Holden Astra is a write-off, even with such minor damage, um, and I'll be getting about 500 bucks from the insurance company. So you can imagine it was a pretty awkward conversation when I had to phone call my wife and just let her know that we'll be down to one car um, for a little bit uh, and break that news to her. Um, you know, at this point, I'm feeling a little bit silly. <laughs> uh, it was pretty wrong for me to be going so fast in that hospital car park, uh, feeling pretty ashamed, feeling pretty uncomfortable when I'm talking to my wife about this. How must this sinful woman have felt in her situation? Everyone in the room knows her sins, her deepest, darkest sins, and she knows everyone knows, and she knows everyone's judging her, but she is willing to go through an extremely uncomfortable experience of judgment of onlookers just to come to the feet of Jesus. What Jesus says turns her shame into peace because she is forgiven. Now, one of the sort of trickiest parts of understanding this verse, uh, this passage is in verse 47. So, have a look down to verse 47 here and let's try and wrestle this uh, in the right way. One of the discussions that's always challenging the church is about faith and deeds, faith and the work we do almost as divisive as hardened soft-shell tacos. For a moment, uh, it looks here like Jesus is actually saying that because of what this woman did, because of her loving actions, her weeping and pouring of perfume, she is forgiven. But 
that doesn't really fit with the gospel, that we know that it's through Jesus' works that we're saved. So, this is a crucial part of the passage that we need to correctly understand. It's going to help us also understand as to how we can love more in our own life. Her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. John Piper gives a really nice example how to, as how to read this properly. Take a sentence like this, all right? The house exploded. The house exploded, for the dynamite went off. The house exploded, for the dynamite went off. The house exploded is the event, and the cause is the dynamite exploding. But try a sentence like this. The house exploded, for I saw it with my own eyes. The house exploded, for I saw it with my own eyes. That word for is the key word here. It changes it, doesn't it? The for is not the, is, is an evidence, not the cause. The for is the evidence, not the cause. So when we read, her sins are forgiven, for she loved much, this is telling us she is loving much because her sins are forgiven. And it makes a heck of a lot more sense when you get to the end of verse 47, when we read the opposite of that. He who is forgiven of little, he who is forgiven little, loves little. We can only guess what's been happening in this woman's life in the last few days and weeks that has allowed her to come to this decision, to enter this dinner and to come straight to Jesus' feet. We know that God must have been drawing her to Him, drawing her to His forgiveness. Forgiveness that Jesus came to bring to the whole world, forgiveness that is waiting there for us to accept. And the effect of this sinful woman is profound. These might not just be tears of sorrow, these might be tears of joy. So let's look at the the how side of things. We're getting to know these two characters and we're starting to understand the two different ways these two characters are approaching Jesus. We've got one with his own agenda, looking to prove his knowledge, improve his profile, he's fixated on the law, he's not concerned about love. And then we've got one with no conditions. She comes humbly, vulnerably exposed seeking to worship and experience her Saviour. So how are we to come to Jesus? Are we meant to have a big list of sins? Are we meant to uh, bring them all, as big a list as we can, to Jesus for maximum forgiveness experience? I think in Romans, Paul responds quite well to that question with, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So the idea here is not to add more to your sin debt or that the bigger the list of sins you have, the better way it is to come to God. No, not sinning, not sinning is God's desire. The idea here is that wherever you're at, you need to realise just how much you have been forgiven. In Romans 3.10, Paul, uh, he's stating that both Jews and Greeks, so that's everyone, are under sin. He references Psalms with this, none is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Big or small, our debt to God, we're still separated from His perfection. And you know, the more we think about this passage, the more I'm always wondering if Simon the Pharisee really had such a small debt. I mean, 
who out there really has so little to be forgiven? I kind of think to myself that I hope that after Simon's dinner, um, he learned he learned the lesson, the, the parable that Jesus had for him. I hope he learned that and didn't harden his heart like other Pharisees. So how are we going to come to God? Now, this might seem a little counterintuitive to suggest to think back on past sins, to remind yourself of what you've been forgiven of. You know, we think we've got new life, we're dead to our old selves, you've got to put the past behind you. My brother, he's a, he was a very annoying child. Um, <laughs> always crying during tennis matches, um, he broke windows in our backyard with lemons, uh, he'd have tantrums on the PlayStation, textbook middle child, uh, and he tells us that he just doesn't recall anything before the age of 16. He's just, he's just in complete denial of the whole thing. Um, but fortunately for him, he has two really nice siblings who can remind him of that. Uh, he's not here this morning, he's in Melbourne dressed up as a Richmond fan. Um, <laughs> on the bandwagon, uh, so to speak. I want to suggest that actually reflecting on our faults, our past, can actually be helpful when we think of how to come to Jesus, to recognize those faults in our past. Now, take a look at this. This is from St. Augustine as he writes in his Confessions. I'll read it twice because it's pretty, pretty wild. I intend to remind myself of my past foulnesses and carnal corruptions, not because I love them, but so that I may love you, my God. Well, that's pretty, pretty strange concept. He intends to remind himself of his past foulnesses, carnal corruptions, not because he loves them, but so that he may love God. He's suggesting there is some great value in actually reflecting on what he has done in his life to remind himself of just what he has been forgiven of. Uh, it's a pretty count countercultural way of thinking in Australia. No one's really wanting to admit that they are wrong. We're in a world where everyone's trying to justify any disorder they have or their behavior or their thinking. They're either born that way or is it even so wrong to be like so? Um, tolerance is starting to get twisted into enabling. And this week on um, the news, a key Channel 9 uh, reporter was actually convicted of involvement with child pornography and explicit conversations on that topic online. When facing the media, his lawyer justified him in that he had only talked about it online, only fantasized and only shared a few photos. He'd never actioned any of his attractions. There was no statement here of regret. There was no statement here of shame, wrongdoing or apology. It was only justification of what extra he didn't do. No one wants to come to the table pleading guilty. No one wants to confess and, you know, it makes sense. It's pretty uncomfortable. It's pretty uncomfortable. But here's this woman who shows us just how to come to Jesus through genuine, exposed, honest confession. Uh, now, we'll talk about the effect of this. The effect of forgiveness is love, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Look at the love uh, this woman's pouring out for Jesus. Compare it to Simon's approach. Read in verse 44 with me. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, 
she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Can you see how this is actually connected to the most important commandment in the Bible? It's in Deuteronomy, it's in three of the Gospels. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. Do you ever find yourself struggling to muster up the energy or effort to show some compassion, maybe show some kindness, maybe show some friendship to people around you? Do you ever struggle to actually just sit in silence in the presence of God for more than five minutes? Maybe you're going around things the wrong way. Maybe to give love, you first need to receive love. In 1 John 4.19, we read that we love because He first loved us. And as uncomfortable as the process would have been for this woman, it's now the fuel for the fire in her heart to love her God and to go out and love her neighbours. Uh, if I ask you to think about the most shameful thoughts or actions in your lifetime, you might find yourself feeling pretty uncomfortable. If I ask you to share it with us up on stage here next week, Lee might find himself in an empty congregation. Uh, but let's look at this sinful woman and think about what St. Augustine said. I mean, I feel embarrassed enough to tell this uh, story of my careless driving in a hospital car park, let alone my deepest sins, my, my shameful thoughts, my struggle with lust in a world that's saturated with sexuality, my greed as I watch those suffer around the world and can still be focused on my own bank account, my pride for recognition at work for anything I might do that I think is pretty good, I, I cringe, I really cringe as I think about all my own faults. But that's exactly what's actually helped me realise God's love for me. Do you remember your debt? Because if you remember your debt, you might appreciate the cost. So, what's God forgiven you that actually changed your life? Has God forgiven you of something you did? Has He forgiven you of a way you used to think? Do you remember that joy? Do you remember that knowledge of knowing something that nothing can separate you from His love? That is, death could cost more than all your sins could cost. Have you actually brought everything to Him? Uh, perhaps you never quite made it past the uncomfortable stage of just reflecting on your past and reflecting on those faults. Perhaps you're quite aware of your sins, uh, your thoughts and your actions, but you just prefer not to think about it or, you know, pretend they don't exist. Uh, maybe you just didn't know that there was any hope for it. Maybe you've never quite heard those words, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Or you have an opportunity here. Jesus meets us where we're at. Jesus drew Simon the Pharisee to him. He had a parable just for Simon, an unrehearsable demonstration of the effect of forgiveness on a sinner as he also drew the sinner to himself. When you're actually aware of what you've been forgiven of, you are filled with love. And all of a sudden, it doesn't seem so abstract to be able to love the creator of the universe or, to, so, to, or so impossible to be loving even your worst enemy. Our hearts change and we no longer desire to sin. Um, I'll just conclude with a, with a bonus point uh, here. Um, we'll, we'll talk, well, it's kind of part of the effect, so you can have a second dot point. Uh, we'll talk about the effect on the church. 
I want to highlight how this experience is actually uniting. Um, as you might feel a bit uncomfortable about, you know, things that you might have just been reflecting on deep down in your heart and your mind, remember, it is a good thing to be convicted of the sin in our heart. That is the Holy Spirit at work in us. But it's the devil's best trick to make you think that you're alone in it, because you're not. This is where the church can stand united in our changing society and our fallen world. See, we see division everywhere. Uh, think about in Myanmar at the moment, formerly known as Burma, we see Muslims killing Muslims. We have division in our community as we dispute and discuss the law of marriage, a pillar of our society. There's division within our workplaces, there's division within our family. This is where the church can actually be united. We've, got all, we've all got a common ground to stand on with this. Uh, it's not our great works, it's Christ's great work alone. The sinful woman, she's relatable on an individual level, but she is also an image of the church. Uh, we too recognise that Jesus, He is the Messiah, just like the woman recognised. And we, like her, we realise that we are broken people and we are in desperate need for a whole God. We're all going to share this experience together and we all make up His church as we do this. And how good is our God? How good is our God uh, in, this, in the story that we're in, that He is here to forgive our sins, that forgiveness is waiting uh, for us as we come to Him, as we come to Him in humility. Uh, I'll close with a prayer and then um, we'll invite uh, the worship team back up and we'll continue worshipping our God. So pray with me now. Um, dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this congregation, this church and what's happening in Fremantle and I pray this can be a place that is a light to these people. Uh, Lord, I pray that we'll persevere through the uncomfortable reflections of our past and our present sins, that we, that we will weep with joy uh, in knowing that nothing we've done is too big to separate us from you, that we are forgiven. Now, as we experience your love, so too can we love you and we can love our communities and our neighbours and we won't continue to sin as you change our desires. That we will be united as the church and the world will see your light through your people and see it in this community in Fremantle. In Jesus' name, Amen.